0: coming up the coronavirus knocks the government off course so how is boris johnson handling this unexpected crisis the budget tries to shore up the economy to cope while also warning a recession may well be around the corner And are we really about to give a key role in intelligence to a former minister who is, well, less than intelligent? Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast. Politicians like to plan for the future, but nobody could have predicted the coronavirus. In just a few weeks, the societal and political outlook has changed completely as has the challenge that faces Boris Johnson. How many times in the last couple of weeks have you thought about Brexit? Exactly. Boris Johnson, meanwhile, looks like he's aged about 10 years in 10 days as he shifts the focus of his government to dealing with the fallout from this virus. These are the moments that test a political leader. They can also cement or destroy a legacy. That doesn't really matter right now. What matters is mitigating the impact of the virus. But there's no doubt that those in Downing Street will be acutely aware of the potential cost of missteps at a time like this. Let's bring in Robert Meekin. Uh, Robert, you, you frequently refer to Boris Johnson as being a bit bish-bash-bosh. There's well, no more Mr Bish-bash-bosh, is it? He's no more Mr Funtime Prime Minister. I mean, this is not... What Boris Johnson wanted to be dealing with a few months after
1: that election win. But, you know, events get in the way. They do. And it just, yeah, We I think all sort of pundits and commentators can be guilty of being a bit presumptuous. We thought, you know, okay, Boris has played a blinder. He's won the day. Corbyn is vanquished. Boris has got his comfortable majority. He's in for a a rosy time of it. Obviously, we kept on using the phrase honeymoon period. Well, obviously now... That is very much at an end. And it is interesting, as you say, seeing Boris's um, body language. I think when he first appeared at the first coronavirus press conference, he had had to sit there and he, he did look, you know, visibly uncomfortable because it, it it isn't the Boris who could be the bish bash bosh it isn't the Boris who can who can tell a joke and just yeah you know, with all the new normal broad brush stroke tell everybody it's going to be fine leave it with me thank you very much it's, it's suddenly it, it was a, a far more detailed complex scary situation so we are seeing another side of Prime Minister Boris, one that's being uh, extremely tested and, as you say, he clearly isn't in his comfort zone. Some people have seemed to almost be willing him to fail
0: in order to prove their point that he was never fit for the job, he's the wrong man to have in a crisis, all of this kind of stuff. Of course, were he to fail, that could lead to tens of thousands of deaths, hundreds of thousands of deaths. So, you know, at this point... For all our sakes, we had better hope that Boris Johnson and his entire
1: team are up to the job oh I- indeed and and i say obviously boris is out of his comfort zone look there aren't many people you know to try being in his position right now there aren't many prime ministers who would be in a comfort zone when facing a global crisis uh, like this that's come uh, so unexpected we obviously have to hope that boris is up to the job and that the team around him are up to the job it's very easy of course to sit back and say well the performance so far hasn't been uh, hasn't been satisfactory the performance so far hasn't been uncertain they're not giving us clear answers because there aren't any clear answers presently. We don't know just how grave this situation is going to be. So yeah, we all have to be on the side of the Prime Minister, whatever your, your political badge you happen to wear the rest of the time and just hope he, the government, everyone else connected with the government can form some sort of strategy that at least is, you know, as is, as is, is, is damage proof as possible. I mean, I think it would be fair to
0: say they got off to a slow start. Maybe it took them a, a little longer than you would have liked to have twigged how important this was. But once... They did get their head in the game. The response, I think, has been reasonably sure-footed. And I think, in part, that's because the government has been giving the medical and scientific experts the lead role. And at a time like this, the politician's job is really to become a sort of facilitator. The people who know what they're talking about tell you what they need to happen or what they need in terms of resources, and your job is to provide it. I suppose where the politics starts to interfere is the extent to which perhaps some of the cuts we've had in the past decade, and we'll, we'll get on to the budget and the reversal of those cuts in a minute, but where the cuts of that past decade maybe start to impede the response. So, for example, who's most at risk from the coronavirus? The elderly. Who's been most affected by the cuts to social care budgets? The elderly. You know, what profession relies on people on gig economy, zero hours, low hours, who not maybe aren't entitled to sick pay? Social care of the elderly, you know, things like that will start to get in the way of the response to the virus. And that's the kind of thing
1: that would eventually start to have a political impact. Yes. And I know we've mentioned it before in terms of the social care system in this country, which has been in a a, a serious uh, state for some time. That is now going to come under real strain. It's always been rather brushed under the carpet for another day. And now when you, when you face a crisis like this, well, there, 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 there's no hiding place anymore for it. It, it. It's a sector that has desperately needed more assistance and, frankly, respect than it's received. And now that's going to come under scrutiny and the government will have to really step up to the plate. There's no doubt because that is clearly where, where a significant percentage of the vulnerable population presently is when we're dealing with coronavirus. You know, another challenge is going to be the potential
0: for a competing pressure between the right public health response and the right economic response. I mean, it's telling that the government has never actually ruled out the idea of mass school closures or of telling millions of people that they need to work from home, limit their use of public transport. Now, they also talk about the importance of timing that very carefully, that you want to do it when you'll have the maximum impact in terms of curtailing the spread of the virus. Of course, also, those measures would have a huge, huge economic impact in terms of depressing demand, depressing spending, putting businesses that are already under pressure under even more pressure. And so there will always be a suspicion in the back of some people's minds that if you are delaying those decisions, it is in part because you are trying to delay the economic harm that it may do. And again, even the suggestion that you're putting people at risk because you are worried about the economic impact, just the mere
1: suggestion of that, again, very politically damaging. It's a near impossible balance to strike. You obviously want to demonstrate to people... And inform people where the crisis is at any given time, any given day. That that's the, obviously is the, the government's responsibility. B, you don't want to start causing unnecessary panic at the same time. Now, how you do both those things I've just mentioned is extremely difficult uh, to fix. And then C, of course, you can, if you do delay, be accused of, of, of cynical political, economic management. So very, very, very difficult. And you've got on top of that, of course, you have a a media, the way it works. I have the misfortune probably to have rolling news on throughout the day as I work. And you see that, the story is being cranked up again and again and again and again. It's managing all those things. It's uh, it's, 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 it's very difficult to get, I think, a responsible, realistic balance out of all that. A crisis like this is also
0: a real challenge for opposition parties because we we talked a minute ago about, you know, whether you like or loathe Boris Johnson, you'd better hope he pulls this off for everybody's sake. Well, there is going to be pressure on the opposition to fall in line behind the government, the sort of, you know, moment to act in the national interest, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you can see a desire, and, and this has happened certainly from Labour, from the SNP and the Liberal Democrats, to highlight where they feel the previous actions of conservative and conservative-led governments have potentially impeded the response to a crisis like this. Of course, at the same time, people aren't really paying that much attention to the opposition at the moment, A, because there is a national public health emergency going on, and B, because actually, you know, truthfully, yesterday's man
1: is still in charge. Yeah, it, it, it's very, very difficult um, for Labour to have a, a relevant voice in, in the broader, in the broader national debate presently. Until this um, long-running leadership saga is indeed resolved, a tricky time for Labour. They really do feel like they're in the wilderness at the moment, and that, that their, their, their story will start again when the, when this leadership uh, issue is resolved. But yeah, you know, beyond that, when we spoke, when we spoke about sort of Brexit, I know I was often so despairing about the way many of our mainstream politicians behaved. And there was this talk of, you know, this is a time of national crisis. We need a sort of wartime blighty spirit to get through this. People need to fall into line. Forget about petty party political concerns. Well, clearly, we're dealing with something like the coronavirus. Again, you would hope that uh, party political concerns will overall be put to one side as we together try and forge a way through this problem and hopefully out the other side.
0: Well, before the coronavirus blew a hole in the government's plans, this was already going to be a tricky budget for Rishi Sunak, the Harry Potter-esque new chancellor. His predecessor was pushed out by a demand to replace his advisers with Boris Johnson's. Mr Sunak then took the job, presumably on the same basis, so presumably was waiting for the budget to be handed to him. The virus has changed that, and effectively the chancellor had to present two budgets At the same time, the big giveaway budget that he was always going to announce with another giveaway package to mitigate against the risk of the coronavirus. Both those budgets, though, see the party that's overseen a decade of austerity measures turn on the spending taps. Tens of billions in extra spending. Money thrown around as if we were in the final moments of a game show. But in the background, there was also a warning that a virus-inspired recession Is almost certain. Rishi Sunak, Robert, talked about a significant but temporary impact from the virus, a big fall in productivity. Look, when you're predicting that as many as one in five workers could be at home sick at the same time, there's no alternative to that. And so to cope with that, this £30 billion package, which is a huge expansion in an instant of state support for the economy, workers being told they'll get statutory sick pay, From the first day they have to self-isolate, they'll be able to get sick notes just by calling the 111 line, businesses being offered emergency loans, the chance to defer tax payments, and smaller businesses getting a year's holiday from their business rates. And it does seem that the principal concern is that that slump in demand that we might see in the next
1: few weeks and months could actually push a lot of particularly smaller businesses to the wall. I don't think the Chancellor had... uh any choice to be fair but to to give these sorts of you know big big reassurances however however you know the, the small print may be I think he had he had to d- d- give out signs of optimism and support. You imagine if he'd the flip side of the coin, if he'd started saying, well, th- today is a day of uncertainty, let's tighten our belts and batten down the hatches. It would have been utter uproar. He had to look like there was a plan in place that he was ready to support these people who could go through really rough times in these next couple of months. I don't think any other approach would have been acceptable. There's going to be some cynic- cynicism about the numbers. How are they going to pull this off? But I think Politically, I would, I'd say morally, and in terms of the economic credibility of the government as well, I, I think the Chancellor
0: could only go this way. Where I do think there's a potential misstep is the handling of the self-employed and the people in the gig economy. And this is something that Labour has seized on. At the moment, there are at least two million people who, if they isolate, wouldn't get sick pay, wouldn't get paid at all, would, would lose an enormous amount of money. Now, the Chancellor had a lot to say about protecting businesses, but if you are self-employed, if you drive an Uber, if you're on a zero-hours contract or something, the advice seemed to go no further than telling you that you should start applying for benefits. Now, given the reliability and the speed of the benefit system at a normal time, the idea of hundreds of thousands of people simultaneously making new benefit claims would not fill you with confidence. And, and it's just got echoes of something that happened a couple of years ago, because the Tories are supposed to be the party of the self-employed, of the the self-starter. They're the party that pushed the gig economy and the benefits of flexible working. And here we have the onset of an unexpected crisis which exposes those people to a real lack of support. And they send a response that sort of suggests the party doesn't really care about them very much. And it just reminded me of the time under Theresa May when Philip Hammond tried to ramp up national insurance on the self-employed. And they had to walk that back very quickly. And I, I just wonder if they're going to have to
1: step up their support at some stage. You live in very uh, different uh, circumstances to sort of you know, 30 years ago, say, when uh, it there seemed to be a, a lot more people who are a, self-employed, who don't have the old economic foundations and certainties of professionals, say, in the late. 1980s, early 90s, things like pensions, things that protect you. A lot of people work without any of that stuff. There are a lot of people, particularly in London, for example. It's pretty hand-to-mouth stuff. It's people who can't afford to be on the property ladder or paying rent each month. And suddenly they've got the prospect of thinking, how am I going to raise that money this month? You know. So they're real, real immediate problems. And as you say, while the Chancellor has tried to make some positive noises, the devil is in the detail. And unfortunately, you can see a lot of people being put in a very, very difficult positions, both in terms of how they get to work, if they can work, how they're going to pay rent, all these sorts of things, which I say, particularly a place like London, is, it could be a real challenge. There were some measures
0: away from the emergency stuff around the virus that at any other time would have got a lot of positive publicity. That um, Finally, the tampon tax is being scrapped. VAT on Digital books is going, the national insurance threshold is going up, and there's huge spending on major infrastructure projects. Now, I say they may not be noticed so much because of the coronavirus and the concern around that, but separating that, this is a huge budget because it's the first time, certainly in our lifetimes, that a Conservative Chancellor has announced these sort of plans, gigantic levels of borrowing to fund gigantic boosts in public spending. I mean, this budget could have been written and delivered by Gordon Brown. And if you go back to December and the general election campaign, the Conservatives are telling us that the Labour Party's plans for huge amounts of borrowing would destroy the economy. To be fair, Labour's plans at the general election were for far, far more borrowing than the Chancellor has announced this week. But still, they have
1: moved into the same direction. It did have the the hallmarks though of of Boris, who isn't isn't averse to making big big promises, uh, not least of a, of a of a financial nature, as we as we well know, since remembering the the infamous days of of the of the Brexit bus, coronavirus to one side, I think it just seemed to represent a, a new way of doing politics in terms of Boris's administration. You know, you want it, we'll pay for it. Not a problem. Well, how are you going to pay for it? We'll explain that a little, a bit more, a little more detail later on. But it just seems, again, this sort of broad brushstroke approach that today the Chancellor, much to the delight of his supporters, I'm sure, and the, the, the MPs behind him, really just saying, whatever you want, you need it, come to us, we'll give it to you. Now, we know <laughs> uh, such, such, such magic doesn't really exist. There's a big big catches and worse along the way. But it just seems to be the attitude of the government right now. I think you know, with at the beginning of the next stage of the Brexit negotiations, they just want to somehow... Give this very very positive spin that we're the country is going forward. There's a country of all manner of possibilities before it. You know we've 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 got a whole new national transport infrastructure in going to be in place, which is going to cost God knows what. Again, we're told don't worry, it's going to be paid for. Then you you get a budget like this today, when it's the same thing. Don't worry, it's all going to be sorted. And while it it will certainly it'll settle the troops for a while. If you're a, a Tory supporter, well, plenty of Tory supporters anyway as i say do you you think underneath that how is this at all feasible it is interesting that the
0: party that oversaw this period of austerity which went on twice as long as was originally promised then is seeking political credit for turning the taps
1: back on that was a hard one for for a labor politician to sit in here because it, it it as you said it had whole, all the hallmarks of an old style Gordon Brown crafty giveaway, you know. And uh, if you are a Labour politician right now, all you can say is, well, the Tories are lying because you're hardly going to disagree with everything they were promising.
0: Let's move on now to what we should perhaps start calling Snowflake Corner. Uh, This time, the tale of Amber Rudd. The former Home Secretary was invited to an International Women's Day event at Oxford University. She is, after all, also a former Minister for Women and Equalities. And she was there to talk about encouraging more women into politics. What better way to encourage more women into politics than to silence a woman in politics? Thirty minutes before she was due to speak, just as she was parking her car... Amber Rudd was very suddenly uninvited. Uh, the organisers, Robert, came under pressure to deny her a platform because of her role in the Windrush scandal. Uh, and they, the group that had organised it had a committee vote and they voted to rescind the, the invitation. Badly judged and rude is what Amber Rudd called it. I mean, you know, heaven forbid that people might be asked to have a conversation with somebody that they politically disagree with. I mean, if, if you are so angered and you have every right to be angered by Amber Rudd's behaviour during the Windrush scandal, you could have asked questions about it, even criticised her to her face about it had you gone ahead with this event. But but no, better to just ban her from speaking so that you never
1: have to be exposed to the views of someone who may be slightly different to you. There's another example of lunatics taking over an asylum. Highly depressing when you think it, it's a one of our the Top uh, academic institutions, where from which within this bonkers decision was made, debases our, our political discussion in this country, and the fact it's Oxford, I think, just you know makes it all the more depressing. Really, because in in theory there are, are people with the with brains, and yet they they just they indulge themselves in the in the in these. Strange fantasies that, you know, only a, a tiny clique of people can be right about anything. There was an opportunity there to really uh, grill Amber Rudd and, you know, make, make her explain herself. And then people could have come away. She could have been round to criticise people who have thought at the end, well, she, is, she isn't much of a politician at all. She may have actually surprised a few people. Who knows? But she hasn't even been given that chance. So, yes, uh, quite pathetic. You know, around a decade
0: ago, no platforming was reserved for actual fascists. You know, people like Nick Griffin, Tommy Robinson, you know, these kind of people would be like, well, we should not share a platform, we should not legitimise such extremist and hateful views. Even that was controversial because there was an argument, you remember when Nick Griffin went on Question Time and there were all these protests about it, there was an argument that putting him on there, exposing that his views were ridiculous and that he was as thick as mints. Was, was actually helpful in, in doing away with, with the rise of that kind of far-right ideology that you should engage with and defeat in debate the people who have hateful rhetoric behind them. But now we've gone from it being preserved for the preachers of hatred into it just being OK to shut down anybody who has ever said or done anything that anybody might ever have found offensive in any way at all. You know, people have this idea that they have the right to coast through their lives with their settled view of the world never being changed. And and you don't have that right. Actually, it should be the other way round. Your views should be routinely challenged. And if you believe in them, you should be able to withstand those views being challenged. But we are now, it seems, in a position where if somebody hears a comment that they disagree with, reads a newspaper column that they disagree with. They want that person banned, ostracized from public life. They start complaining that they don't feel safe because they read or heard something that they disagreed with. And 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 it's it's ludicrous. And it's making rational,
1: sensible, respectful debate Difficult. Believe it or not, there, there's 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 there is a simple truth, and I you know I was luck, been lucky enough to be at least vaguely educated, and so unsurprisingly, what I have learnt, and you know from, from people of the right, people of the left people in the middle because they surprise surprise they're extremely intelligent individu- individuals on all sides of the political argument who if they were sitting here now would put together a very persuasive argument over half an hour on this show I'm sure and yet that sort of level of discussion that sort of level of debate isn't being allowed as you say because people prefer to be in this weirdo comfort zone of where they only sort of where only a, a fraction of what is said can be heard and everything else is utterly unreasonable or as i say somehow even fascist i think there probably there are people i will know who who would, who will say quite fiercely that the country is run by a bunch of fascists that boris johnson is an evil fascist blah 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 and and i i do think they they would really really believe it and i think the the problem with that is that they are actually scaring off you know, potential support because you know, it, the Labour Party at the end of the day is about trying to get back into government. But there's so many people very, very vocally attached to the cause, people, frankly, right now in the shadow cabinet who will spout this stuff. And I just think that puts off a great deal of their potential support. But they're so blinkered because they live in such a narrow metropolitan world, a lot of them. They just don't see it from the outside.
0: Finally, a brief moment to talk about a name we never expected to be saying again. Chris Grayling. Yes, failing Grayling. The hapless former transport secretary. The man who commissioned ferries from a company that had no ships. You may have thought you'd heard the last of him, but apparently he is back. And reportedly, Robert, he is to get a place on the Intelligence and Security Committee, which is odd. As nothing in the past has ever pointed to Mister. Grayling's vast intelligence, and with him in such a potentially
1: important role, it is a little bit harder to feel secure. Who am I to say I've, I've never been in government, never will be? I, I, do, I do not know what hidden talents this man may possess. Lord, they're well hidden. Yes, they are. And I mean, from the outside, I, I obviously I see a very dull, uninspiring. Individual who seems to lack any sort of uh, sense of genuine empathy with anybody when, when he speaks. Obviously, he appears a fairly robotic, soulless um, political creature. But such people, it's interesting politics, some of these people always just keep on rising back to the surface. and It's very difficult to understand why. Behind the scenes, we can only presume he must be considered diligent and, and sort of efficient or he's got some serious dirt on somebody.
0: Right, well, I hear a noise in the background, which I suspect is my half hour reminder to wash my hands and bathe in antibacterial gel so i think we'll leave it there for the moment don't forget that at partygamespodcast.com you can find links to subscribe via apple Podcasts, google or spotify and you can always keep in touch on twitter facebook and instagram at partygamespod for now though thanks to robert thanks to you for listening and until next time goodbye